0: Good morning everyone, I'm Peter Gettler, it's my honor and privilege to be the president of the Cato Institute and uh, it's also my pleasure to welcome you all here on this chilly morning but it's November in Washington, it's supposed to be chilly. I reserve my complaining in Washington for July and August. I'm okay, I'm okay with November. Um, You know it was about an hour after last year's monetary conference that Jim Dorn asked me if I would deliver the welcoming remarks today. And at that time, I would not have predicted that I'd be on the 10 o'clock Acela to New York today. But I would have predicted that I'd finish my welcoming remarks at about 8:37, which is actually what happened. Um, I'm often asked why I agreed to join Cato as president for my second career when I was asked to do so by my predecessor John Allison. And the answer is easy. I felt joining Cato was the most important contribution I could make as an individual to the fulfillment of a mission that I consider to be a moral imperative, and that is to ensure that we pass on to future generations a country that is at least as free, and hopefully hopefully more free, than the one that was bequeathed to us. I think it will be an immoral tragedy if we leave future generations buried under mountains of debt, or leave them with a regulatory or other burdens of government that don't allow them to exercise their creative talents and entrepreneurial energies to attain their dreams the way we've been able to achieve our dreams in our own lifetimes. And I explain to people that if it were just about me and my own generation, I wouldn't be involved in this effort. I'd probably be on maybe a ski slope um, because I'm now in my mid-50s and I see my life as pretty much baked, although we read all the time about uh, encounters that people have with the regulatory state or the criminal justice system that can ruin their lives, and we speak out about those at, at Cato, um, you know, they're, they're unlikely to affect most of us. Um, and I think that whatever time I have left is probably going to be um, pretty similar regardless of what the course of freedom is over the remainder of my lifetime. But the kind of lives our children and grandchildren live will be dramatically affected by what trajectory freedom takes over the rest of our lifetime and throughout their lifetimes. And that, in turn, has a lot to do with how much effort we exert to make sure that we keep our country and the world free. And when I tell people this, I add a little postscript. I say, you know, my life's not going to change that much unless. Mistakes in monetary policy erode the value of the savings and assets that we have all worked thoughtfully and painstakingly over the course of our lives to accumulate. The state could indeed have a dramatic impact on our lives and standard of living whatever time we have left. And we have all witnessed examples, in fact, way too many examples, of countries where grievous mistakes in monetary policy has wiped out all of the savings and value that citizens have worked entire lifetimes to accumulate. And I think that is one whopper of a coda. It makes one wonder why our monetary system and monetary policy don't get even more attention and raise more concern than they already do. We read regularly, as I said, about cases in which lives of citizens are ruined by frightening encounters with the regulatory state or the criminal justice system or where we are concerned about the potential for abuse of individual citizens that is inherent in the modern surveillance state that has developed over the last few decades. And at Cato, we spend much time and effort raising awareness of these risks. Sending the message that it can't happen to me isn't necessarily true. And even if it is, sitting and watching while others suffer at the hands of the state is no less troubling. But can any of us think of a realm in which so much of the well-being of each and every citizen hangs in the balance than in the monetary realm? And is it not incredible that with stakes that are so high, we have delegated so much authority, so much discretion, and the scope for so much experimentation to the unelected experts down on Constitution Avenue? And too few of us seem to care about it. And of course, it wouldn't matter to me if we were delegating that authority to elected experts either. And so it's been a mission of the Cato Institute almost since its inception, and clearly over the last 35 years as we participate today in the 35th edition of this great conference that has been so ably stewarded by my colleague Jim Dorn over that many years. And it has been our mission to raise awareness of these issues and the fact that our fiat government monetary system is incompatible with the American idea of freedom. It is frustrating that so many advocates of free markets seem so willing to acquiesce in government planning of something so important as the monetary system. Indeed, it was during my years on Wall Street that the Greenspan put was established and, if you'll pardon the pun, perfected. And so it became standard operating procedure when we found ourselves headed into tough market environments that so many on the trading floor would say, don't worry, the cavalry, that is the Fed, will be on the way. It's important to make them aware that other issues to which they ascribe greater priority, such as the sins of ever-growing federal spending or the sin of $21 trillion of federal debt, would simply not be possible without the original sin of a fully discretionary government money system. And of course, Another important element of this mission is the development, analysis, and dissemination of ideas for moving this system in a direction more compatible with free markets and more compatible with the American conception of liberty. Indeed, it was the advancement of this mission that led my predecessor at Cato. I was going to say redouble, but if it were a word, retriple, uh, would probably be more apt, retriple our efforts in this area, arena. John Allison, whose name was recently raised in the context of the position of Fed Chair, is with us today, as are two of the finalists for the position, John Taylor and Kevin Warsh, any three of which I would have vastly preferred with all due respect over the man to which the job has fallen. Last night, we sat in this auditorium and heard a great champion of freedom, Nobel Laureate Mario Vargas Llosa, deliver a lecture on the subject of populism. One of the things he said is that human beings don't like sacrifice. And this is one of the important reasons for the allure of populism. The demagogue who promises that he or she can fix all of our problems, make our lives better, and deliver us from fear without us having to exert ourselves or make sacrifices in the process. That's the attraction of populism. And is this not also the unfortunate allure of our fiat money system? In which so many believe that the experts down on Constitution Avenue, through their machinations and experimentation, can push the right buttons and pull the right livers to develop, deliver economic growth and prosperity without effort on our behalf. And the risks and potential downside are no less great than for countries in the grip of the populist ruler. Thank you. And now it's my honor to introduce our keynote speaker, Loretta Mester. I'm assuming Loretta hasn't been in Cleveland long enough to be a Cavaliers fan. But I'm hoping that she's not a Golden State Warriors fan because there's so many of those coming out of the woodwork those days. And, and that's what I mean by, you know, humans not liking sacrifice. Unless you sacrifice in all those lean years, you can't be jumping on the bandwagon now. But she joined the Cleveland Fed in, in June 2004. She received her undergraduate degree, uh, summa cum laude, from Barnard College. And uh, Barnard is a fine institution, but having a daughter that attended uh, Barnard, I think it's probably a good guess that that's not where Loretta's, um, the appeal of free market economics was developed (laughs) by by her. Um, She earned a master's and a PhD in economics from Princeton where she was a National Science Foundation fellow. She's president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland and spent many years at the Federal Reserve Bank in Philadelphia before arriving in Cleveland, where she started as staff economist in 1985 and rose to executive vice president and director of research in 2010. She's an adjunct professor of finance at Wharton, uh, the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, and has taught both there and in the PhD program at New York University. She is the managing editor of the International Journal of Central Banking. Co-editor of the Journal of Financial Services Research, and associate editor of several other academic journals. Please join me in welcoming to the podium our keynote speaker, Loretta Mester. I'm
1: on my gizmo here. So thank you very much for that. Very nice introduction. And and I really want to thank the organizers for inviting me to speak today. Um, This is Cato Institute's 35th Annual Monetary Conference. And to some of us, 35 seems relatively young. Um, But for a conference series, it's actually a ripe old age. And I think the series longevity really um, underscores the important contributions that the series has made over the years to the public discourse on monetary economics and policy. And uh, just looking around the room and seeing all these, um, you know, distinguished speakers that I'm really looking forward to hearing um, today really makes me um, very happy to be here. Now, whether you interpret 35 as young or old depends on the context. And that brings me to my topic today. I'm going to talk about demographics um, and their implications for the economy and policy. Um, This might seem a bit unusual as a topic for a Cato conference, but demographics have been on my mind lately, and, and not just because I had a birthday last month. Uh, the word demographics comes, of course, from the ancient Greek, demo meaning people, and graphics meaning measurement. And there is a strong tradition um, of studying demography as part of economics. Mathias' is writing on population growth is part of many, many history of thought courses in economics. And more recently, as the economy has moved from financial crisis and the Great Recession to sustainable expansion, attention has shifted from cyclical aspects of the economy to structural factors. Um, And in addition, as the policy has begun to normalize, the question has been raised, well, what is normal? Um, And to answer that question, we really need to understand how the underlying fundamentals of the economy are evolving. And to my mind, one of those critical factors is demographics. Demographic change can influence the underlying growth rate of the economy, structural productivity growth, living standards, savings rates, consumption and investment. It can influence the long-run unemployment rate and equilibrium interest rate, housing market trends, and the demand for financial assets. And moreover, differences in demographic trends across countries can be expected to influence current account balances and exchange rates. So to understand the global economy, it helps to understand changing demographics and the challenges they pose for both monetary and fiscal policymakers. So today I'm going to spend some time talking about some of these demographic trends and their policy implications, and of course, the views I'll express are my own and not necessarily those of the Federal Reserve System or my colleagues on the Federal Open Market Committee. So until the early 18th century, world population grew little because high mortality rates were offset by high fertility rates. But increased knowledge and technology, technological change in the form of advances in medicine, public health, um, and nutrition began to lower mortality rates. At the same time, fertility rates also began to decline. In the U.S., there were shifting preferences for smaller families because of the rising opportunity costs of having children and the higher costs of raising and educating them. The shift in populations from rural to urban areas reduced the need to have a large family to run farms. And there were also changes in social norms regarding the use and availability of birth control. The baby boom in the US after World War II and the subsequent echo when the baby boom generation began having their own children were really just exceptions to a generally downward trend in the birth rate. Today, the fertility rate in the US is 1.88 thirsts per woman and this is less than the United Nations estimated 2.1 replacement rate needed to keep the population stable. It's considerably less than the fertility rate in 1900, which was over three. Now, as these demographic changes have played out, the average life expectancy in the U.S. has, has risen and population has aged. Average life expectancy at birth is now nearly 80 years old, 30 years higher than it was in 1900. The median age of the U.S. population is approaching 38 years old, nearly 10 years older than in 1970. And by 2050, the U.N. projects that the median age in the U.S. will be 42 years old and that the number of people aged 65 or older for 100 working age people, those aged 15 to 64, will be more than double what it was in 1970. Reflecting projections of relatively stable fertility rates and continued aging of the population, world population growth is expected to slow. It averaged around 2% per year in the later half of the 1960s and slowed to 1.2% per year over 2010 to 2015. U.S. population growth including net international migration is expected to slow from about 0.8% in recent years to under half of a percent in 2050 with nearly two thirds of that growth coming from net migration. Now a number of advanced economies are actually further along in this demographic transition than the U.S. is and the process of population aging is accelerating worldwide. In Japan, the population has been shrinking over the past five years. The ratio of older people to working-age people is the highest in the world, and the median age is almost 47 years old. Across Europe, fertility rates have been below the replacement level for some time. In China, the growth rate of the working-age population has slowed since the late 1980s, and partly because of its previous one-child policy, China's population is also rapidly aging. The median age in China has increased from around 19 years in 1970 to 37 years in 2015. On the other hand, many low and middle income countries are at a considerably earlier phase in the demographic transition with young and fast growing populations and rising labor force participation rates. In India, the median age is around 27 years and the annualized growth rate of the population from 2010 to 2015 has been 1.2%. The UN projects that in seven years, the population of India will surpass that of China, currently the most populous country, and that India's population will continue to grow through 2050. Also, much of the increase in world population between now and 2050 is projected to be in Africa, where fertility rates remain high. Now the implications of these global demographic patterns for the future of the US economy are worth considering because they do pose some challenges for monetary and fiscal policymakers. Indeed, the magnitude of the effects will depend on policy responses. So the remainder of my talk will discuss some of the ways these changing demographics could influence the US economy, in particular labor markets and economic growth. Then I'll turn to considerations for monetary, fiscal, and other government policies. <laughs> Demographics influence the supply of labor. Now, typically, as mortality rates decline and people live longer, the supply of labor increases. We saw this pattern begin uh, in the U.S. in the late 60s and the 1970s, especially as women and baby boomers began entering the workforce. The result was an increase in the available supply of prime-age workers, both females and males, and potential growth rates in the three to 4% range. Even though life, uh, increased life expectancies means individuals will need to work longer in order to save more for retirement, usually population aging eventually leads to a downward trend in labor force participation in the aggregate. And this is already happening in the US. Labor force participation peaked at 67.3% in early 2000 and fell to 66% in December 2007 as the Great Recession was beginning. Since then, it has fallen further to 62.7% as of October. Now, while some of the decline represents cyclical factors, research suggests that most of the fall in the overall participation rate can be attributed to demographics, the combination of an aging population and reduced participation rates at older ages. As a result of lower population growth and labor force participation, the growth of the U.S. labor force has slowed considerably, from 2.5% per year on average in the 70s to around half of a percent per year over 2010 to 2016. And it's expected to remain near that level over the next decade. The changing age distribution of workers can affect not only labor force growth and participation, but also the longer run natural rate of unemployment. Older workers typically have lower unemployment rates than other age groups, and they tend to change jobs less frequently. Young people now make up a smaller share of the labor force. All else equal the combination of lower quit rates for older workers and lower numbers of younger workers should imply a lower natural rate of unemployment compared to the 1990s. Of course, the timing and magnitude of this demographic effect are not certain because there are counterbalancing factors, including the fact that so far, contrary to expectations, the retirement age for older workers hasn't changed much. The productivity of a worker varies with age, and policies such as unemployment and retirement benefits can affect labor market choices. Now, the expected slowdown in population growth and labor force participation rates will have implications for long-run economic growth and the composition of growth. And the key determinants of the economy's longer-run growth rate are labor force growth and structural productivity growth, how effectively the economy combines its label and capital inputs to create output. Now, as I discussed, demographics suggest that the labor force growth will be considerably slower than it has been in recent decades, and this will weigh on long-run economic growth. In addition, in theory, the aging of the population can also have a negative effect on structural productivity growth. Over the past five years, labor productivity measured by output per hour worked in the non-farm business sector has grown at an annual rate of only about a half of a percent. Over the entire expansion, it's average 1%. Now, while some part of the slowdown is likely cyclical, reflecting persistent effects of the Great Recession on investment spending, Structural factors are also weighing on productivity growth. As I mentioned, older workers tend to stay longer in their jobs than younger workers, who are more likely to change jobs and employers. Now, this allows older workers to gain deeper experience, which can be positive for productivity growth. At the same time, lower labor mobility means workers may remain in jobs that are not the best match to their skill sets. And this would be a negative for productivity growth. Indeed, one study finds that both short tenures and long tenures adversely affect productivity growth. And historical evidence suggests a hump-shaped relationship between age and productivity, with productivity increasing when a person enters the workforce, stabilizing, and then declining toward the end of a person's work life. Research also indicates that an individual's innovative activity and scientific output peaks between the ages of 30 and 40. Although, calm down, that age profile has been shifting older over time. Labor mobility and business dynamism, including the number of startups in key innovative sectors like high tech, have been declining for some time. Now, whether dynamism will remain low is an open question, but the aging of the population is here to stay. So far, the magnitude of the negative effect of the aging workforce on productivity growth appears to be quite small. Even so, the demographics induce slower growth of the labor force and possible dampening effect on productivity growth suggest that longer-on-output growth will likely remain below the 3 to 3.5% rate seen over the 80s and 90s unless there is some effective countervailing policy response. In addition to affecting the economy's trend growth rate, demographics will likely affect the composition of growth by shaping aggregate consumption, saving and investment decisions. Increased longevity means that people will need to save more over their working life to fund a longer retirement period. This is especially true given the degree of underfunding of public pension plans at the state and federal levels. Demand for healthcare will continue to rise and an aging population will place different demands on the housing sector than a younger population, affecting the demand for single versus multifamily properties owning versus renting, and for residential improvements that allow older adults to age in place. By affecting the composition of output, changes in the age distribution have the potential to affect the business cycle. Because of its cyclical and structural implications, demographic change also has implications for monetary policy. So let me talk about three. First, although monetary policy cannot affect the growth rate of potential output or the long-run natural rate of unemployment, it needs to take these into account as part of the economic environment and to consider the downward pressure demographics put on both relative to their historic levels. Second, changes in demographics could also affect the transmission mechanism of monetary policy to the economy, in particular the strength of wealth effects versus income effects. Older people tend to hold more assets than the young and tend to be creditors while drawing down their assets to fund their consumption during retirement. Younger people tend to be borrowers but face tighter credit constraints than the old because they hold fewer assets. As the share of the population shifts from young to old, the propagation of an interest rate change through the economy is likely to change. There will be a smaller share of young borrowers able to take advantage of a decrease in interest rates but a larger share of older people who benefit from higher asset prices. Similar reasoning applies for an increase in interest rates. Demographic change may mean that wealth effects become a more important channel through which monetary policy affects the economy. A third important implication of demographic change for monetary policy is through its effect on the equilibrium long-term interest rate. Now, FOMC participants have been lowering their estimates of the Fed funds rate that will be consistent with maximum employment and price stability over the longer run. The median estimate has decreased from 4% in March 2014 to 2.8% today. And empirical estimates of the equilibrium real Fed funds rate, so-called R star, while highly uncertain, are lower than in the past. Demographic change may be a factor in the decline to the extent that it results in a lower long-run growth rate of consumption and therefore output, which is a key determinant of the long-run equilibrium interest rate. Now the magnitude of any effect is difficult to determine because complicated dynamics are at work. Static analysis might suggest that as longevity increases, people will want to accumulate more assets to fund their retirements. And this would put upward pressure on asset prices and therefore downward pressure on returns. Moreover, because people prefer to reduce their exposure to risk as they age, we might expect to see a shift towards assets with fixed returns, putting upward pressure on risk premia and downward pressure on risk-free rates. However, older people also tend to save less because once people reach retirement age, they need to draw down their savings and perhaps sell assets to fund their retirement. This countervailing effect from just saving as well as public spending on retiree benefits would tend to put upward pressure on interest rates. <laughs> Thus, the magnitude and even the sign of the effect of demographic change on interest rates are empirical questions. So far, there's little evidence that demographic trends are driving large scale shifts into fixed income investments that would depress returns. Indeed, the evidence suggests that people are undersaving for retirement. And historically, there appears to be only a weak correlation between age structure in the US and asset returns. So ultimately, how demographics affect economic outcomes will depend on how governments respond. So in the remainder of my time, let me discuss the implications of demographic change for fiscal and other government policies. The rising share of older people will put significant pressure on Social Security and Medicare in the US which are structured as -as pay-as-you-go programs with current workers providing support for current retirees. Other developed countries' government pension and healthcare funds will also be stressed. Projected longer-run fiscal imbalances are unlikely to be sustainable, and it seems likely that governments will need to respond with some combination of increased borrowing, reduced benefits, increased taxes, program restructuring, and policies intended to stem the growth rate of healthcare costs. Longer on fiscal sustainability will depend on what combination is used and how effective the actions are. According to CBO projections, under current policy, the federal deficit as a share of GDP will more than triple over the next 30 years, from 2.9% in 2017 to 9.8% in 2047. During this time period, outlays for Social Security and Medicare are projected to rise from 8% to 12.4% of GDP. As a result, the federal debt-to-GDP ratio rises dramatically from 77% in 2017 to 150% in 2047. This increase dwarfs the run-up in debt to fund World War II. The extent to which such an increase, per se, will crowd out productive investments and lower economic growth is debatable. But the sovereign debt crisis in Europe over 2009 to 2010 shows that high debt levels, and pose severe problems if investors lose faith in the ability of governments to service their debts, generating spikes in which had previously been viewed as risk-free rates. If financing the funding shortfall through increased government borrowing is undesirable, raising taxes and reducing benefits or other expenditures are not very, very appealing either. Depending on how such policies are implemented, they could ultimately hurt the economy's longer run growth prospects. Leaving the fiscal outlook even worse. Moreover, in a world where counter cyclical fiscal policy is constrained, business cycle volatility could rise, and monetary policy could find itself near the zero lower bound more often, potentially requiring the use of non traditional policy tools such as asset purchases and forward guidance in order to meet monetary policymakers' economic objectives. Now, more effective policies to overcome the effects of the aging population on fiscal imbalances would focus on reducing the rising costs of health care, not just on health insurance. In addition, policies that increase the growth and productivity of the workforce would address not only fiscal imbalances, but put downward pressure on longer run growth from demographics and other sources. Policies that increase immigration, not reduce it, that support continuing education, that encourage R&D and innovation, and that provide incentives so people work longer should receive attention. In summary, demographic change will result in a slower-growing and older population. This transition will likely put downward pressure on the growth rate of potential output, the natural rate of unemployment, and the long-run equilibrium interest rate. The magnitude of these effects and the timing are uncertain because they depend on complicated dynamics and the behavior of consumers and businesses. Demographic change may also affect the business cycle and the monetary policy transmission mechanism. Monetary policymakers will need to continually evaluate these structural and cyclical effects in determining appropriate policy. Demographic trends present challenges for fiscal policymakers as well. Rising fiscal imbalances are projected to lead to higher government debt to GDP levels, potentially putting upward pressure on interest rates and crowding out productive investment. But steps can be to offset, taken to offset some of the negative consequences of demographic change for the economy. These include policies that focus on increasing productivity and labor force growth, and then address growing fiscal imbalances. Thank you for your attention, and I'm happy to take questions. How you want to do questions? Someone would just want to raise their hands and I'll take some. Bill. <laughs> Well, I think there's certainly a role that government policy plays in it. Um, there's a lot of research going on that's looking at that particular cohort and trying to understand it. There, uh, some research attributes it, attributes it to um, the Great Recession and the, the impact of that on that cohort of workers. The difficulty of getting that cohort back into the workforce after such a deep shot. Um, there is also research that looks into sort of the, the opiate crisis, which we've all talked about in this room in various places and been in forums where that's been talked about. Um, you know, causal effect, direction of causality is very difficult to determine there. You know, was it out of work, out of the workforce? then you become sort of a, you know, it becomes an addiction. Or was it, you know, that caused that workforce, and there's ongoing work, and the Cleveland Fed's looking at that, Um, as well as various other parts of the Fed are looking into that. So I agree with you that that cohort in this particular uh, event is one where we saw declining workforce participation. I think the demographics just means that we're going to have a lower participation rate overall, and I think we, as, you know, Policy makers and interested parties need to really take that into account when we're thinking about what the economy is going to look like after that and what we can do um, to to, to change that. Um, But I don't disagree with your premise that government policy can have an effect here, um, and I think we need to pay attention to that when we're thinking about what policies we want to do to, to boost productivity growth in a sense. Hello? Thank you. Um,
2: Immigration policy. Um, In some of my research, uh, I've studied these um, demographic trends that you're talking about. But when you split the population between uh, immigrant population and non-immigrant population, you see different dynamics. Immigrant population having much higher fertility rates, um, the whole immigration paradox, which uh, means that
1: you're keeping uh, the older population seems to be healthier than the non-immigrant population, and you also have, uh, and uh, part of my research, I've seen certain resilience to dropping the labor force. I mean, uh, immigrants are, are less likely to drop the labor force, especially immigrant women, are less
2: likely to drop the labor force than non-immigrant women. So how is, um,
1: or not, or how should immigrant poli- immigration policy address that? So, I you know, I'm not gonna get into the nitty gritty of sort of what proposals are out there, but we need to have an Im- a sensible immigration policy to have a workforce, a growing workforce. It seems clear to me that we can't cut ourselves off and not allow immigrants into the country. There are different ways of doing that, of course, um, and different proposals out there about how to do it and how to treat the immigrants that are already here. But it seems clear to me that if we want our workforce to be growing, we're going to have to have a sensible immigration policy and not wall ourselves off um, from people who come in with skills and as you say, ambitions and abilities to actually provide work here um, and to make a better life and to increase our productivity growth. So the actual policies, I'll leave that to the fiscal side and the government policy but it's clear to me that we actually have to have a sensible immigration policy and we wanna welcome people into this country who can add to our workforce, add to our population growth and add to our productivity growth.
0: You mentioned that that as the population ages, uh, the Federal Reserve may have to rely more on um, creating more of a wealth effect in order to stimulate the economy. Um, This I kind of question if that's the right thing to do. When you drop interest rates, the values of stocks, bonds, and all financial and real estate goes up in value. It makes the rich richer for doing nothing more than being rich to begin with. And um, so I don't know if that's the right thing. And then so with these uh, older rich people, uh, you think they're going to spend more at the restaurants or something to to stimulate the economy. I I don't think making rich people richer by dropping interest rates is anything going to do to help stimulate the economy. So I'm completely questioning this idea of the wealth effect even being something they should be considering. I think it just creates a a big difference in the very wealthy and the rest of the population.
1: Usually when monetary policy moves interest rates, you get two effects. You get an income effect and a wealth effect. My point was that when the distribution by age changes in the population, those effects, the magnitude of those effects and the relative Uh, magnitudes of those effects will be different than they are today which means that the actual effect of an interest rate change positive or negative is going to be different than what it is with a younger population and so as a policymaker, you know you're going to set an interest rate or change an interest rate because you expect a certain effect on real activity, the unemployment rate, um, inflation. Those effects are going to be different because of the distribution. It's not that you change interest rates to actually try to do a wealth effect or try to do an income effect. But those are the way monetary policy transmits to the economy and to decision makers. Those effects will be affected by the fact that the age distribution in the population has changed. And so we may not fully understand what a given interest rate change will mean for, our goal, for achieving our goals. And so we're gonna to have to take that into account as we go through. I'm not saying that we should aim for one or the other. I'm saying that they exist We just have to understand them and sort of study what those impacts are going to be. It's not going to necessarily be the same impact that we would have had in the 70s when we had a different kind of population demographic. uh,
2: Is that working? Yeah. The the supply side uh, demographic factors you mentioned uh, presumably uh, by undermining or, or reducing productivity would put uh, uh, upward pressure on prices. That is, their, their adverse supply-side factors. Yet, uh, since it announced its two percent inflation target in January 2012, the Fed has consistently undershot that target. That is, already, uh, it's 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 uh, it's not able to reach its target with these factors that should be pushing prices up, other things equal. To what do you attribute this failure of the Fed to achieve its 12% topic in light of the demographic factors you've discussed?
1: The demographic factors I'm talking about are sort of longer run issues in the economy. The, two, the, the The fact that inflation has been running below 2% for quite some time certainly is a concern for the Federal Reserve. My own view is that we might not have, it should not have been necessarily unexpected given the depth of the shock that hit the economy and the Great Recession and the length of time it took to the economy get back on its footing. So, I guess my feeling is that we have, the economy is picking up. You know, the expansion is well established now. Um, we have seen some pickup in the recent months in productivity growth. Um, the unemployment rate is, is lower than most, any estimate of full employment. Unemployment rate would be. Um, And we are starting to see inflation move gradually back up. It's certainly higher than it was um, earlier on um, um, last year. So it's moved up over the past year, um, certainly not as strongly as some anticipated, but it's moving in the right direction. So I guess I would take issue with the fact that um, it's not moving in the right direction. We've tried to calibrate the policy response. Right, to take that into account. So you know, the gradual pace of interest rate increases is trying to be a balanced approach to the fact that the unemployment rate is, is quite low, labor markets are at full employment or perhaps a little bit beyond full employment and yet inflation is still low. So you know, I, I think of an indication of that this is sort of a balanced approach is that if you look at any model um, and any kind of uh, interest rate rule, you know, Taylor rule or any panoply of rules, right, the path that's in the SEP is quite a bit flatter than the path, right, that those rules would describe. I don't think that means that the path, gradual path is wrong, but I do think that's an indication that this is really a bal- trying to balance the factors that are affecting the economy right now, including the fact that we haven't made it up to inflation back to our goal, that there are risks on both sides of that forecast, that there are risks on the unemployment side of the forecast and the growth side of the forecast as well, both positive and perhaps some negative, and that we also have financial stability considerations given that we've held interest rates as low as we have for as long as we have. All of those factors figure in to establishing what you think the appropriate path of, of policy is. And to my mind, that gradual path still remains the appropriate path of policy and that we still want to continue to take back some of the accommodation that we felt necessary to put in to address the Great Recession. So, you know, there is a bit of a puzzle why inflation isn't already at 2%, but, you know, the economy dynamic and there are many factors affecting the economy at any one time. I'm not as troubled by where inflation is today. Um, I think there's good reason to believe it's going to move back up to 2% and that's what my forecast is. Um, And I think the policy we've been implementing is consistent with that forecast.
2: I appreciate that you sat down to think through demographics and its impact on sort of the economy, society in general. And I want to tie back to, as you think of an aging population and its saves in order to reach its, you know, to live through retirement, As it gets older, it takes less risk with those savings because it doesn't have the ability to replenish them through work or it has a shorter period of time to replenish them through work. At the same time, I've watched a Federal Reserve policy go to zero interest rates and punish them. (coughs) Under the thought process that if I could get somebody to borrow money they would go do something to increase economic activity. I assume that's what the thought process was. If I make money cheap, someone will borrow and then do an economic activity with it. Thinking through what you said with demographics, it seems that those poli- that policy is incongruent with society. It's trying to do something else, which is safe. As the Fed sits and thinks about these things, and obviously you have sat and thought about them, how do you square that incongruency as you try to figure out a policy that gets back to what you said is, I need to find some way for an equilibrium between borrowing and lending?
1: I think you've made my point for me in the sense. I'm not going to go back and sort of talk about what the Fed did before I was – president it did what it did but going forward i think we have to really understand the demographics to understand what the transmission of a policy change a monetary policy change would be through the economy and it's exactly those kind of things that you're talking about is what's the impact on on the economy and that transmission mechanism that i think will be affected by the demographics so example right your your thesis about you know a monetary policy change affects different Parts of the economy differently always has been true, always will be true. Understanding what they are and the fact that an aging population and what their asset holdings are and the dynamics of that, I think is a, a I don't think it's settled. I think it's an important uh, research question, and I think we're gonna need to do some more study about this to actually understand what the mechanism is. I think in general, the idea that you lower interest rates to generate activity will stand. It just may be that the, the, the magnitudes will be different, and the way that transmits through the economy will be different.
3: Thank you, Loretta. Um, so I noted of, of all the many variables you discussed that might be influenced by demographics, you, of course, avoided the word inflation And I wanted to ask you, this is not a comment on current or trailing inflation, but as we look forward, do you have any sympathy at all for the view that the, if you like, natural rate of inflation in an aging population may be different from the natural rate of inflation in a prior period with very different demographics, such that it may be worthwhile reconsidering the appropriateness of a 2% inflation target. I want to abstract from the transition questions. I know we, we all agree that regardless of whether you have the optimal target or not, it could be costly moving away from it. But in terms of understanding whether it's going to be harder in some structural sense to achieve that 2% in the period ahead.
1: So I did avoid inflation in the speech because I looked at the literature on this and the research on this and it's kind of a, there is no conclusion from it, you know. And I also want to make sure that we can separate measures of inflation from inflation. Okay, so we have a lot of measures of inflation, um, and they're all different ways of measuring what we really mean by, you know, price level increase in the overall price level. Measures of inflation probably will be affected by demographics, right? Because the baskets will be different, et cetera, et cetera. And to the extent that you know some measures take into account changes in the basket and others don't, we'd expect that. The literature on whether inf- real inflation will be affected is, there isn't any conclusion that comes from that. So I find no strong evidence that demographics will have an impact on that. Your other part of the question though is a different question I would say, in that are there reasons to think about the framework um, that policymakers or monetary policymakers are making, um, using to, to set monetary policy, right? And there are many people who Um, think that there you know are reasons maybe to rethink it perhaps because um, the economy might spend longer at the lower you know zero lower bound and demographics might play a role in that because as I said right there are some there is some research that suggests that and reason and theory to suggest that you know, the the long-run equilibrium interest rate may be lower, okay? But I think of that as a separate question. It's not through its effect on can we get inflation up. It's really through its effect on this underlying structure, and therefore maybe you want to change perhaps or consider changes to the framework that will be better off in an economy that's going to spend longer time perhaps with the zero lower bound, you know, Constraining policy, Um, I do think that's a very important thing that we should all be, you know, starting to think about um, to prepare ourselves and evaluating. I mean, the Bank of Canada rethinks their framework every five years. That's seems to me that's not a bad thing. I mean, I think that's a very good thing. I think the discipline of systematically having to go through that exercise, even if you end up in the same place, is actually a very, very good thing. Um, And I think that we should we should do that. Oh, that's
0: a question. Oh, okay. One and two, two and one. I'll go first. Um, you make a pers- persuasive case about demographics and the need for immigration, yet, I hear our tech giants, the billionaires from Silicon Valley, telling us that none of us need to work in another 50 years. Won't be a problem for me, but might be for you. Um, are they wrong? uh, All of the efforts in tech for driverless cars, driverless trucks, driverless trains, et cetera, is supposedly just the first step to where we just sit back and let robots do all the work for us. Do you have a comment?
1: This is a... I've thought a lot about this because I think if... I do believe in technological change. I do believe we're moving much faster than people think that we're moving. Um, I think that the technological change is, is uh, true. I, you know, I'm not one of the people who think that we haven't had any technological change over the past, you know, 50 years. I think we are moving fast. I struggle with it because at some point, and not in my lifetime certainly, we could get to a point where, you're exactly right, we don't have the need for as many workers. Um, and what do you do then as a society? right? If you're the owner of the capital, you're fine. If you're not the owner of the capital, what do you do if, you're not, if you don't have work? Now, you could say, well, everything will equate and everything will, you know, the economy will take care of it. I'm not, I'm not certain of that. And so I've struggled with this a little bit of thinking about, like, what if you, we, meet, we move into that, you know, environment, right? How do we, as a society, decide what, what, how we're going to organize ourselves? So you could do redistribution, but how would you do that? and how, what's the right way to do it, and what's the right way to not distort incentives when you're doing it. I, I don't think this is an easy, easy thing um, to do, but I think we're leaving it for our children to have to decide, because I don't think we're gonna see that in my, in my lifetime.
0: Yes, um, the introduction in the banking system of the risk-weighted capital requirements exasperated a little bit the natural risk aversion of the banking system. And so we now have banks not financing sufficiently the riskier future, mainly refinancing the sort of safer past. It is sort of an older, uh, it, it, it is sort of making the banking system respond to the older, safer generation requirements than to the younger needs of taking risks. What can we see at the end of this uh, if we continue this road.
1: Well, your question is premised on the fact that you thought that risk-taking being taken before the change in the requirements was the right level of risk-taking. And I'm pretty sure that I would think most people would say perhaps not, given what happened. That's it. but, so let me put that aside and just think about is the current system, regulatory system and, you know, portfolio things put together since Dodd-Frank, the right portfolio. And frankly, I think that there can be changes to make that system work better. Um, I think that we are overly complicated. I think that some of the risk-based standards are overly complicated. I would see a trade-off between the level of risk, of of capital, the quality of capital, versus the the intricacy of the risk-based capital. I think simplification would make it work better. Um, So again, I don't take the premise that necessarily that the banking system was taking the right level risk before the changes. I think the system is safer. The question is, is it gonna achieve the outcomes that we wanted to do, which is continue to lend and to get funding, right, from savers to borrowers in the most efficient way to be able to to fund the innovation that we need in, in the economy. And I do think there are things that we can do to make it work you know, better, but higher capital is part of that. High quality capital is part of that. The stress tests are part of that, although I believe that you don't have to stress every bank, but, you know, having a stress test for the largest institution, I think, is part of that. But it's focused on capital, um, I think, is the important thing. I, I will take one more question.
0: Hi, Brian Barney, Value Rich Advisors. On your point about demographics to help us in the how much weighting the per capita per person measures versus the aggregates? For example, in Japan over the last two decades, the average Japanese shopper has been stronger than the average US shopper, especially since 2001 and more so since 2009. How are you going to weight those so we know how to look at you? <laughs>
1: So I'm not quite sure, I mean, if you're measuring sort of uh, standards of living, you want to do per capita income, right? And if you want to do grow, aggregate growth rates, you want to just look at growth rates. So I'm not quite sure what, what your question is per se. Um, I think we got to look at the aggregate economy, we're going to look at the aggregates, right? Our goals for monetary policy are full employment um, and inflation, and so we're going to look at aggregates. But in terms of the standard of living of a country, Right, and the gains from higher productivity growth, higher potential growth, you want to look at um, income per capita. Okay, thank you very much.